Friends, as you turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 5, it was John Piper who famously wrote decades ago that missions and missionary work and the Great Commission, that's not the goal. Worship is the goal. Missions exist because worship doesn't. And what we stood and sang here in the doxology, we want not just for ourselves, but everybody. All through Columbia, all through the Silk Road we heard about this morning, all through the nations, that the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the waters, the sea. And that's what we wrestle with this morning, even as we come to our text in Luke chapter 5, what it means to be converted by God and what it means then to be launched out and called by God into this great commission work together. So let's look at Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him, Jesus, to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of the Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And when they had filled both the boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Let's pray together. Lord, let us say with your prophet Samuel, Speak, Lord for your servant is listening. Teach us, speak to us, into our hearts. Show us what it means to be called by you, converted by you, sent by you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, friends, I've said this before, but I've thought a lot about this encounter between Peter and Jesus at his boat. And I've thought how different Peter's life could have been if he hadn't encountered Jesus on this day by that boat. I mean, Peter grew up in Capernaum and he was part of a family business and he had a good road ahead of him. If he would stay with the business, then he could have the wife and the 2.5 kids and the white picket fence and, and he could retire by the Sea of Galilee and watch his grandkids grow up. If he had not met Jesus, all of those things were his to be had. But here comes Jesus and Peter's life is changed forever. It's gonna go very hard for Peter from here on out. He's gonna leave family, he's gonna leave his business. I'm sure his family and I'm sure his neighbors don't understand and don't agree with what he's doing. And the reward for that is he's going to be ridiculed and mocked and threatened. And eventually he's going to be beaten up and he's going to be thrown in prison until ultimately he will die by being crucified upside down in Rome all because he let Jesus use his boat today. Don't you think 
There will be moments in Peter's life going forward from Luke 5 when he reflects upon this and he reflects upon the cost and he worries that it is just too much. It's too much to believe and it's too much to bear. It's too much to endure. It's too much to strive for. It's too much to give your life away for. Don't you believe he worried that in his life? But now, if you could spend a moment with Peter who stands before the throne of God looking full in his glorious face and he's flanked by the nations and they are worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth, do you think Peter regrets for a single minute meeting Jesus on the beach? He doesn't. Jesus is worthy. He's worthy of all praise. He's worthy of all cost. He's worthy of, of wrapping a life together and tying it in a bow and just handing it to him to do what he will. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Revelation 5.12. Jesus is worthy to Peter. And I tell you, church, Jesus will cost us. There's no fine print. Jesus will cost us, but we will find him oh so worthy. We get to watch that. We get to see a man converted, and then we get to see him called to a costly ministry, and that's not just for Peter's sake. That's for all of our sakes. We watch it, and then we follow Peter as Peter follows Jesus, and we absorb this call for ourselves. Let's talk about his conversion first. Now, we said that Jesus grew up in a little village way up north called Nazareth, and eventually he moved from that to a bigger town called Capernaum, which is right on the Sea of Galilee, also called the Lake of Gennesaret. It's a fresh body of water. And this is not a fairy tale, a fairy tale setting. This is not like long, long ago in a, in a galaxy far, far away, there was a man named Jesus. This is a real place. We can get on a plane today, if you spot me, and we can go to Israel and I can show you where Capernaum is. It's still an archaeological dig. It was destroyed by an earthquake hundreds of years after Jesus was there, but it's sitting right there and you can go and you can walk around it and you can see what the, the, the Lake of Galilee looks like. It's a little smaller than Lake Murray and it's just right there and people are still fishing on it today. You can see inscriptions of the disciples that are there in that town. All the evidence is sitting there. And one of the great archaeological finds of our era was a group of men who in the Sea of Galilee found a fishing boat from Jesus' day. It was sunk into the mud, so it was perfectly preserved, and they were able to excavate it, and it's sitting in a museum. It's about 25 feet by 8 feet wide. It dates back to Jesus' time. It was just the kind of boat that he was sitting in and preaching from. All of that is sitting right there. We are talking about real people in a real time, in a real city, in real events. Jesus walks down to that city, and he begins to preach on the shore. He told us back in chapter 4, verse 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. And there he goes preaching, and people are jostling to hear him. And then he got poor Simon over to the side. And we know he knows Jesus because Jesus was in his house earlier. But, but Peter's been fishing all night and he's exhausted and hungry and tired. He just wants to clean up and go home and go to bed. 
But Jesus plops himself in Simon's boat and then says, hey, can I use your boat? Would you push me out a little bit? And he begins to preach. And Peter's there on the boat while Jesus is preaching. I don't know what he's thinking while Jesus is preaching that entire time. But when he gets done, he turns to Peter and says, hey, put out in the deep and let down your net. And Peter, who could never hold his tongue, pushes back feebly, Master, we toiled all night and we caught nothing. You ever try to do this with Jesus when he tells you to do something and you mansplain to him why the thing you're saying isn't going to work in my situation, with my circumstances and my resources, and it's just not going to fly? Well, Peter does that feebly, but he obeys and he goes out reluctantly and does it. They put out in the deep, they catch an enormous amount of fish, and Peter is undone. Look at his response in verse 8. But when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. How did we get from fish to sin? It actually reminds me of the scene in the synagogue with the demon. When Jesus walks into the synagogue and the demon has this visceral reaction, what are you doing here? That's the same thing that Peter is doing. Just, Just Jesus tipping a little bit of his divine power makes people and demons around him just exposed for who they are. It's as if Jesus' closeness to God makes Peter feel just how far he is from God in his sin. When Peter says this, he sounds like Isaiah getting a vision of God. Woe to me, I'm a man of unclean lips. It was Nancy Guthrie who made the great point that when you hear modern accounts of people dying and going to heaven and then coming back and and writing a best-selling book about what heaven looked like, every scene they give is so quaint and sweet and nice. It's warm and it's fuzzy and there's fields of flowers and, and there's Jesus smiling and you sit down to tea together and Isaiah's like, who are you kidding? I was there. I saw it and it terrified me. And here's Peter on the boat saying, I wasn't even there. I saw a fraction of it on a boat. And when it was exposed to me, I was terrified and I fell on my face before him. Think about Nazareth and Capernaum, purely religious, self-interested towns. When they see Jesus's miracles, they say, stay with us. This is great. Stick around. We could use a person like you. Stay put. And and when we need miracles and things and exorcisms, this will be great. You're here. Stay with us. But Peter has the opposite reaction. He sees who Jesus really is. He's overcome by his sin and Jesus' holiness. And he begs, depart from me. I can't even stand in your presence. Now, I called this a conversion, but I don't even want to fight about when the exact moment of Peter's conversion is. Is it right here? Or is it when he confesses that Jesus is the Lord? Or is it when he sees his resurrection? Actually, Jesus takes no time to break down the gospel for him. He says, he he owns his sin, and Jesus then doesn't turn around and and deliver John 3.16, or a bridge illustration, or the Romans road. He doesn't break down the gospel at all. Instead, I want you to notice this. Peter has just declared in front of everybody what a big, nasty sinner he is, how unworthy he is to be in Jesus' presence. If Jesus knew what was good for him, he would turn around and walk away and have nothing to do with Peter. And how does Jesus respond? Peter, you're hired. That's exactly what I'm looking for. Your readiness to own dark, 
real deep sin inside of you shows that you are then ready to receive a gospel that you don't deserve and that equips you to then go and turn and share that gospel with another person. Isn't that amazing, church? Our sinfulness doesn't disqualify us from Jesus or from ministry. It's actually a prerequisite. You are not ready for Jesus and you're definitely not ready to do ministry with Jesus until you see this for what it is, your heart before God, a holy God to own, I have real sin within me. I do not deserve his presence. I don't presume on his presence. I need the mercy of God to know him myself. And then I get excited to share that mercy with another person. When we acknowledge real sin within, Jesus says, now that's a person I can use. That is a person I can use in my kingdom who understands this kind of gospel. So that happens in Peter's life. That's what we're calling his conversion. But Jesus turns right around and then calls him into ministry. In verses 10 and 11, Jesus calls his very first disciples. Now, Jesus is a Calvinist, okay? Because in Jesus' day, it would have been the students who chose their rabbi and their teacher. Jesus says, I don't play that way. I'm the rabbi who chooses my students. I'm going to pick the people who are going to come follow me. And so that's what he does here. He chooses. And when he chooses these men, he gives us a model. He gives us a paradigm of what's not just true for these four, Peter, Andrew, James, John. It's not just true for the 12. It's not just true for cool stories that happen in the beginning of the book of Acts about the early church. What Jesus does with these men is true for all disciples. If you desire to be born again and follow Jesus, these two things that Jesus gives them, he gives to every single one of us. And those two things are these. Number one, Leave everything you must. And number two, bring everybody you can. Leave everything you must and bring everybody you can. That applies to Peter and the four and the 12 and the acts and the church today. Leave and bring. Let's think about both of those. Number one, leave everything you must. It's gonna get a little uncomfortable in here to hear about leaving. But you read in verse 11, when they brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. Now, here's Peter and company with a successful fishing business. They just had a huge payday of fish. There are sunny days ahead for them in Capernaum. And they just walk away from all of it. And, and Peter can't help himself. And so later, he reminds Jesus of what it costs to follow him because he says in Luke chapter 18, Peter said, see, we have left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or sisters or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this life and also in the life to come. Luke 18, 28 to 30. And then earlier than that, as if to underscore, this is not just something for those 12 disciples, but something for us too. Luke 14, 33, Jesus says, so therefore any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You see why Jesus struggled to grow a big church. 
because he said things we don't want to hear, unless you renounce it all, you can't be my disciple. Now, let me give us a clarification and then a challenge. And the clarification is this, at face value, this seems simple enough. And if this is literally what Jesus was saying, then the application would be, there's an offering plate in the back, and as you leave, I want you to drop your house keys, car keys, boat keys, storage locker keys in those buckets, and then go and follow Jesus. He has called you to leave everything. That's the application. You won't need that stuff. But actually, per the actual practice of Peter and the early church, there was sacrificial living, but they definitely, some of them definitely kept their families and their personal property. We know that Peter will maintain his family because Paul will complain about it later. Is it only Peter that gets to have a wife and kids? I don't get to have that. He gets to have that. So he keeps that. We think he kept his house because this is the base of operations for Jesus. He keeps coming back to Capernaum. We think he kept his boat because that's what Jesus uses when he's traveling around. We think he kept his business because after Jesus rose from the dead and the disciples didn't know what to do, they went back to the family business and started fishing until Jesus came again. So, so Peter is doing something. He is leaving in a sacrificial way, but it's not as simple as pulling that verse out of context and saying he left it and never went back to it. He maintained those things and kept those things. That's the clarification. Here's the challenge. I was afraid to even give a clarification because the American church doesn't need an excuse to leave less. She hardly needs to be talked out of self-denial and self-sacrifice and being too radical about her faith. She hardly needs any clarifications at all because she struggles to show forth a savior who is so worth everything. I would leave it all behind just to have him when everybody else watching us is wondering, what have they really left? And what has it really cost them? Because they have what I have and some of them have more than what I have. And it doesn't look too bad to follow Jesus. I stayed in a Hampton Inn recently and I went to their fitness center, which is a depressing place. It's small and it's cramped and there's some broken machines in there and some dumbbells and, and there's a list of rules on the wall and it says a bunch of stuff, don't sue us, no kids in here, no guns in here, use everything properly. And then the final rule is a kicker it says, stop at the first sign of stress. Now, what are you doing in a gym if you're going to stop at the first sign of stress? How can anything of value happen in a fitness center if we are going to stop at the first sign of stress? That's a sign sitting in the Hampton Inn Fitness Center right now, and I fear it is a banner over the American church. Stop at the first sign of stress. You pick a Christianity that fits you and fits your budget and fits your dinner table and fits your time commitments and fits your weekend schedule. You choose what level you want and you enter there and that'll be perfectly fine. And then along comes Jesus saying, if anyone would have come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and feel stress. You will feel the stress of following Jesus. Ministry is hard. 
Relationships are hard. Peace and unity in the church is hard. Holiness and self-denial are hard. I can't think of a single thing worth having in the Christian life that doesn't come at the end of a cross. It doesn't come at the end of self-denial. It doesn't come at the end of incredible cost. If you find a place and you gather in a place that is free of stress and it's free of cost and it's free of sacrifice and it's free of self-denial, that ain't a church. That's a Hampton Inn. You have not found a body of Christ where you will come and be co-crucified. This is going to cost us. Jesus will cost us more than we can imagine. I wish I could tell you what it will be for you and for your family and for your relationships. I I wish somebody would have warned Peter sitting there that day what it will cost him. Jesus will cost us dearly, but then he'll give us himself and it will be of greater value than anything we could ever imagine. He's the pearl of great price. So we leave everything we must And we bring everybody we can. Jesus says, this is not just for you. Don't take this and go home and hide it under a bushel. This is not not just yours. This is for you and for your spouse and your roommates and for your kids and your classmates and co-workers and neighbors and your barber and your plumber and the grocery store cashier. This is... This thing is for everybody. You're going to bring everybody. Peter, Jesus tells Peter, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. We, church, we're going to be fishers of men. We're going to cast this net wide in our city, and we're going to cast this, cast this net wide through missions, and we're going to cast it through praying for our city, we're going to cast it through during, doing mercy ministry in our city. We're going to cast it through, through living out the gospel in front of a watching city. We're going to do it when we go to a growth group and get trained in evangelism. We're going to do it when we show up at work and, and find winsome ways to bring up the gospel. We're going to cast this nest wide because it is for everybody. We're going to bring everybody that we can. And Jesus gives us, and I'll close with this, a miraculous metaphor to show how this is going to work. This is not you that's going to do this. This is Jesus that's going to do it. And he says, I'll show you because we just watched Peter fish all night and then we just watched him fish for an hour and Jesus says there's a kingdom principle right here. Peter, without Jesus, all night in the boat equals no fish. Peter, with Jesus, equals so many fish they're about to sink. Jesus has this knack for lavish miracles. You're going you're gonna to see this in the gospel. Jesus doesn't do things in half measure. When he does a miracle, he does it through and through, above and beyond. When Jesus does this miracle for Peter, he doesn't give him enough fish to pay his rent. He gives him so many fish that the boats are about to sink. When he feeds the 5,000, he doesn't just give everybody a bite to eat. They're full and they still collect 12 baskets. Jesus is giving a principle of how he operates in his kingdom. Where Jesus is absent in busy ministry, it's going to be a lot of long nights and empty nets. We've done that. We've tried to muscle some ministry. 
We've tried to throw some human gifts into ministry. We've tried to skirt around prayer or a season of seeking God in something and just tried to make something happen in ministry. And we have had some long nights and some empty nets without the presence of Jesus in what we're doing. But where Jesus is present, in his kingdom work, the fruit is full and lavish, is over the top and it's abundant. It's from Jesus, it's done by Jesus, and it gets presented back for Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, do this work within us. I pray that you would convict us and show us through your presence that we are sinners desperately in need of this gospel, desperately in need of the grace of Christ for us. And as you call us to yourself, as you convert us, as we're born again, as we feel the lavish love of Christ, we will feel your call on our lives to leave what we must and bring what we can by the power of Jesus. We ask it in his risen and reigning name. Amen.